Please be seated. Our text this morning is found in Jonah, chapter 3. We'll be reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 10. It'll be found on page 775 in the Bibles in the pews. Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's together go to the Lord and ask for his help as we seek to understand his word. Father God, we've come to this part in our study in Jonah where your work of grace opens the eyes of sinners to the reality of your mercy, to the reality of your compassion and your grace. God, we thank you that we are recipients of that through Christ, and we pray that as we seek to study and learn from this text, that you would remind us of the grace of which we've sung, the mercy of which we've confessed, that is ours in Christ. Would you draw us to yourself in repentance and renew in us a desire for obedience? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The history of the Christian church is littered with stories of how people were awakened to the reality of their sin and the mercy of God. As they went about their daily lives, the grace of God intervened in some way to reveal their true desperation, their hopelessness, their misery. And these stories are truly miraculous. They are encouraging for us to read today. They're in countless books and stories. You can find them just by simply Googling the grace of God in, in a Google search. They remind us how God continues to work in surprising ways. Many of you here may even have similar stories like this. You would never have envisioned yourself a recipient of God's grace and mercy, maybe never even envisioned yourself sitting in a pew this morning. And the way in which the Lord opened your eyes is a testament to the work of his grace. Just last night, I had the privilege of talking with a gentleman out in our parking lot about this very thing. He confessed to me that he grew up in, a, in the church without ever believing the truth of the gospel. He went to college void of his faith and a desire for holiness. In his words, he lived college to the fullest experience, which even continued after his graduation. What was it that awakened him? How did God's grace pursue this particular gentleman? 
It was when a person who he had never met looked at him and simply said, you do not look well. And despite, he, he said, I felt physically fine at the time, this young man came undone. He shared to me last night how he went home to start reading his old Bible that was simply collecting dust on the shelf. He pursued others to help him understand the truth of the gospel of the salvation in Christ. And it was in that simple question that the grace of God opened this young man's eyes and his heart to the mercy of God. As we come to chapter 3 of Jonah, we find a similar but no less surprising story. It is one of the earlier accounts of how God's grace works to revive sinners, to awaken them to their need of his mercy. And the main target, though, compared to the rest of this book, it isn't Jonah. It's the wicked and the nasty people of Nineveh. The Lord is going to show how his grace even extends to the likes of people like this. And like he did with Jonah, the Lord will draw out these people out of their sin and into the open sea of his grace. He will bring them to the point where he is their only hope. So we will see this morning that the grace of God awakens sinners like us to his mercy and our need for obedience. That is, the grace of God awakens sinners like us to his mercy and our need for obedience. This picture of God's awakening, reviving grace unfolds in three parts. It's how this story unfolds. First, we see individual renewal in verses 1 through 4. Then we see corporate repentance in verses 5 through 9. And then we see a sovereign response in verse 10. I believe the points are in your bulletin, but it's an individual renewal, corporate response of repentance, and a sovereign response. And each of these emphasizes how God's grace works to bring about obedience and new life in light of God's abundant mercy. We begin first with this individual renewal in verses 1 through 4. God's grace renews Jonah that he might obey his God-given mission. We have already seen to this point how the grace of God has been at work in the life of Jonah. It has pursued him in a storm. It has rescued him by a fish. Chapter 3 brings now a moment of truth for Jonah. He gets to show the effect of God's grace at work in him, at work on him. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 are almost repeated verbatim of verses 1 through 3 in chapter 1. And this is on purpose. Jonah is graciously given a second chance. He is back to where he started hearing the word of the Lord calling him to go to Nineveh. The only difference now is Jonah gets maybe a subtle hint at what his message may include. It isn't reflected here in the ESV, but there is a change in prepositions from chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 3, verse 2. Other translations note it, where instead of Jonah being called to call out against, he is now told to call out to the city of Nineveh. I don't want to make too much of it, but I think there is a hint here that Jonah's message is going to anticipate there being results. Something's going to happen with Jonah's message. However, as chapter 4 will show, the results may not be what Jonah is expecting. But regardless, we, do, we see that Jonah does what he was told. We witness his obedience. In verse, two, I mean, verse 3, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The contrast between Jonah then and Jonah now is striking. 
The man who sought to flee the presence of the Lord is now in full compliance with the word of the Lord. The picture here is a, is a picture of immediacy. Jonah does not linger. He does not waste time. He receives the message of the Lord to go to Nineveh, and off he goes. The Lord, word of the Lord is his marching order that he is actively following. But we also see that Jonah doesn't simply go. He also does his job. He could have gone and done nothing. But instead, he goes and delivers the message given to him by the Lord his God. It says in verse 5, the end of verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now some are not quite finished laying things upon Jonah. They see the size of the city, three days journey, and see that Jonah only goes one day of traveling. And they mark it as maybe Jonah's reluctance. They view Jonah's five-word message that's literally, yet 40 days, Nineveh overturned, is lazy and it's lacking sincerity. Some even hold that Jonah only spoke these five words and nothing else. He either spoke them on repeat, just constantly saying those five words, or he may have only said them once and that was it. While all of this could be true, it seems to be that the author's point is to move past Jonah in this section and to get to the main characters of this story, the people of Nineveh and the Lord God himself. Jonah in chapter 3 is a side character. He will come back center stage in chapter 4. But the brevity here is probably simply for the purpose of moving the story along to get to what happens with Jonah's message. It is more likely to get to the exciting point, the miraculous point, the part that we're not expecting. Because the emphasis here at this stage is simply that Jonah has been renewed. He has been restored to his function as the prophet of the Lord. A function, mind you, that he no longer deserved to fulfill. He would be the messenger of God's grace to the wicked people of Nineveh. And sometimes this is how God's grace works in our own lives. It renews us in the form of second chances. Parents, I think, may be the, the first that come to my mind of people who are renewed for the purpose of second chances. I have only been a parent now for a little over two years, but even in that short period of time, I have repeatedly failed my kids. Impatience, anger, selfishness, and grumbling are just a few of the variety of ways that I have sinned against them. And against the Lord, my list is far longer. You likely have your list too. You and I, parents, have not been the most effective instruments of God's grace to our kids. We have blown it, some of us badly. And yet in his grace, God continually renews us for the purpose of displaying that same grace to our children. He extends many more opportunities, far more than we deserve, for me, for you to obey him through loving and humble servants to our kids. And God's, work, God's grace works in this way with all of us. We don't deserve any additional chances. We have all turned, we have all run. We have often done it on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis sometimes. It takes us sometimes forever to learn our lesson. Our mistakes are repeated far too many times than we would like to admit. But none of this negates the grace of God at work to renew us. He does not keep record. 
but continues pouring out his grace as a good and loving father upon his children. The grace of God renews us that we might faithfully obey him in every area of life. Now after Jonah's renewal, we also see Nineveh's corporate repentance. And this is the bulk of the story. This is the surprising part of the story in verses 5 through 9. God's grace led the people of Nineveh to turn from their sin and instead to turn to the Lord. First, we see that the people of Nineveh responded to the word of the Lord with belief. And this is how we know that even if Jonah was not eager to preach, even if he was reluctant, even if he was lazy, he delivered the message he was given. Verse 5 says, and the people believed, not Jonah, they believed God. Jonah did not need to be the best preacher, thank goodness. He did not need to be the most winsome. He did not even need to give a thorough explanation of the message. He simply spoke the word, and the word did the work. And the response of the people of Nineveh proved the words of Isaiah 55, 11, where the Lord says, My word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. This is the first sign of true repentance. It is to believe the word of God as the word of God. The people of Nineveh, think about it, they could have taken Jonah for some crazy lunatic who happened to wander into their city. He likely looked and smelled like a person who just walked out of a fish. They could have rejected his message as the message of some other God who they had no business dealing with and who they had no reason to answer to. But instead, they hear the message of pending judgment from the Lord and believed that it was true. But they didn't just stop by believing the message. They, they rejected the temptation that sometimes we have, which is to adopt a eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die type of attitude. Well, it's going to happen. I might as well just go ahead and enjoy the rest of my time here. But instead, they believe and they go one step further. We see that they humble themselves. Every single person. It says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Even the king gets involved. He takes it one step further. He arises, steps off his throne, removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, and sits in ashes. This is an extreme display of humility and brokenness. And even in this humility, they also include their animals. They have their animals put on sackcloth. They have their animals in ashes. In a way, in the city of Nineveh, all of creation has humbled themselves before their creator. And this was not some kind of display of penance, or was it a, 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 something akin to Israel's common behavior of empty religious rituals? Out of their belief that the Lord's word was true, they truly humbled themselves and their actions match their hearts. The physical signs of sackcloth and fasting and ashes were merely outward manifestations of the work of God's grace within them. They, like the sailors, are now undone by the grace of God. And their next move takes it even further. It says that they turned from their sin. The king issues this decree, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
Turning, this is the very definition of repentance. It is doing that 180 to turn away, to turn our back from onto sin and our face to the Lord in obedience to him. Now for Nineveh, this particular turn, turning from their evil way and from their violence, would have been striking. It would have been noticeable. You would not have been able to miss it. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we read a few verses from the prophet Nahum where he describes the notorious nature of Nineveh's evil and violence. They were a sexually immoral city. They were filled with idolatry. They were void of all decency and void of all honor. History notes how they performed all sorts of vile things on the prisoners of war and those that they killed. Bodies were mutilated, displayed publicly for all to see, These individuals made the Romans look like no big deal. Almost probably made them blush with some of the things that they would do. And yet these people, from the king, the highest among them, to the lowest, the animals, they turn from these in humble contrition. The nation best known for their evil and their wickedness ceased to do what they did best in repentance. Further still, in their turning, they do the last thing and they appeal to the Lord for mercy. The ending of the king's edict is to to tell the people to let them call out mightily to God. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Out of their humility and their repentance, they understand the position that they are in. They deserve the judgment that is 40 days away. And they notice they're not whining. They're not claiming it's unfair. We didn't know. How could you do this? They don't even try to plead their case or to justify their actions. They hope without any basis for it that the God of Jonah, the God of Israel, will show them mercy. Not explicitly, the people of Nineveh confess with the sailors from chapter 1, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. They don't know if it's going to please the Lord to be merciful to him, but they're going to appeal to it anyway. And they even go one step further and obey the words of the prophet Joel, unbeknownst to them, when he told unfaithful and wicked Israel, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. They do what Israel would continue to refuse to do. Turn and repent and throw themselves upon the mercy of God. Does any of this reflect how you and I respond to the word of God, namely when it exposes our sin? Do we believe the word of God? even when it's difficult and it draws out those ugly parts of our thinking, of our behavior? Or do we try to explain it away, maybe even justify our behavior? Are we humbled by it? Or in pride, do we try to resist it? Do we turn from our sin on a daily basis? Or do we simply ignore it, hoping that it will just go away and never come back? Do we appeal to the mercy of God made available to us in Jesus Christ 
Or do we simply assume, like Israel did, that we are covered? Because we presume that God will be gracious and merciful to us. And does this also apply to us as a local body, part of the larger body of Christ? Do others see us as repentant people? Do they see the fruits of our repentance, both amongst one another and to a watching world? Does all of this apply to us as we think about, as we engage in repentance? These wicked people from Nineveh are a picture of what true repentance looks like. May such repentance mark us as individuals and mark us as a church. Now all this does beg the question, did the people of Nineveh become worshipers of God? Did they go the route of the sailors and make God their own? I'll be honest, I don't think the text is overly clear. And there's a lot of different people on different sides of the argument. On the one hand, the divine title that the author uses here is the generic Elohim. It is not the covenantal name that we saw the sailors use at the end of chapter 1. Additionally, history tells us Nineveh was go- would end up still being destroyed 150 years after Jonah. It would seem that if their repentance was genuine, it was short-lived. However, the book of Judges tells us that even after Joshua died, an entire generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel arose. So if Israel could witness such quick abandonment, then it is not out of the ordinary that maybe Nineveh did as well. The city could have seen, even if brief, a time where the God of Israel was feared and worshipped. But whatever the case, the long-term effect still would expose Israel, the actual people of God. Even though Nineveh was still destroyed, they were still one step ahead of Israel because they turned from their evil. They appealed to the mercy of God. Israel would continue in their sinful defiance up until their exile. They would not believe God, but rather continue to presume upon his mercy and grace. And such a response would continue even with the arrival of another prophet like Jonah. This prophet would also come preaching a similar message, repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke 12, verse 32, this greater prophet would proclaim that the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus Christ is the full display of God's call for sinners to repent. He is the complete picture of what Nineveh received as just a taste. Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient and sinless, unlike Jonah. He had no sin to turn from, for he was always faithful to the word of his Father. He came preaching repentance to all those who would turn from their sin and place their hope and trust in him and in him alone. He extended the mercy of God once for all sin through his life and death on the cross. In Christ, God has turned from his fierce anger that our sin justly warrants. And in Christ, God has poured out his mercy and grace, enabling sinners like you and like me to turn from our sin and to turn to his grace and his mercy. Whether your faith this morning is in Christ or something or someone else, the call for you is the same. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Christians, we are called to do this as a daily evidence of our belonging to him. 
those of, us out, those of you outside of Christ, you were urged to do it that you might receive the same mercy now and before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is your only hope. So we've seen this picture of reviving grace as first an individual renewal and then as a corporate repentance. And now we see the climax of this story in the sovereign response in verse 10. The Lord showed abundant mercy towards those in desperate need of it. He answers the people of Nineveh just as he has previously answered the sailors and answered Jonah when they called out for mercy. And we see that God is sovereign even over the people's repenting. Now we can admit that what the people of Israel did, uh, Nineveh did was pretty shocking. Jonah certainly doesn't expect it, as we'll see in chapter 4. And if I were him, I'm going to be honest, I wouldn't have expected it. Even the people of God, as we just heard, did not respond to the word of him, to the word of the Lord, as this city did. The northern kingdom would never repent, especially their wicked kings. The Lord would continually send prophets calling them to repentance, and they would continually refuse. But here in Jonah, we see an entire pagan city, from the, the greatest to the least, hearing the threat of God's righteous judgment against sin, and see them responding and turning from their evil. Now, some find this response to be entirely unrealistic. They think it points to this book being fictional. For why would a wicked nation, with no understanding of the true God, repent like this? It is possible that contemporary events made Nineveh ripe for Jonah's message. There are historical accounts that political unrest was all over the Assyrian Empire. The once stable monarchy had fractured into smaller kingdoms. Record also shows that a famine and a total solar eclipse had hit Nineveh roughly around the time that Jonah arrived. So both events may have heightened anxiety or even been received as divine signs of displeasure or of judgment. And even these two realities are certainly under God's sovereign control and they may have had some influence. But I don't think it's a problem if we simply rest on the power of God's word to do what it does in the lives of these sinners. For Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 tells us that the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of the Lord is powerful. Jo the Lord's plan was to send Jonah armed with his word to bring this people to repentance. And this is why we continue to read, to preach, and to teach the word of the Lord today. This is why we value it as the word of God, inspired, inerrant. We believe that it does things we believe that it powerfully works in and through the lives of his people and people outside of his family. May we trust God to do things through the power of his word, both in our individual lives and in the lives of our body. In his sovereign plan, the Lord sent Jonah as the instrument through which the people of Nineveh would repent simply by speaking his word. But even more shocking than their repentance, we see the most shocking aspect is the Lord's response of mercy. 
Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the great blessing of our God being a God of mercy. He invites all to cast themselves upon his mercy. The gods of Nineveh would not have been so compassionate. They didn't care about their followers. They were too busy doing other immoral and indecent things. They could not be bothered by or interested in the affairs of human beings. An appeal to their mercy was literally a shot in the dark. Maybe it would somehow serve their interest to intervene. Maybe it wouldn't. In their thinking, it may not serve any benefit to them to help. But we don't serve a God like that. He sees and he responds. In 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord even says that he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Certainly, this doesn't mean that God is not in control. It doesn't contradict Jonah's confession that salvation belongs to the Lord, but instead it reveals the heart of God towards those people who bear his image, which is all of us. He invites us to seek him, to call to him. He awaits to pour out his mercy on all who do. This is the great surprise and shock of this entire story, of this entire book, that the Lord shows mercy towards those who are even outside of his people. But this is also what the Lord has promised. I read earlier from Isaiah 55 about the word of the Lord, but later, earlier on in that same chapter, the Lord reveals his invitation for all to come, even those outside of the nation of Israel, when he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Our God is eager to show mercy. He does not withhold it from those who flee to him. This invitation is the same invitation for each and every one of us. The Lord calls us daily by his spirit through his word to turn from our sin he calls us to throw ourselves upon his mercy made available to us in Jesus Christ. And his response when we do is always mercy. It is always the open arms of a father ready to embrace the children that he loves. Whatever the sin you struggle with, the Lord is ready to extend mercy. It may be the most grievous sin imaginable, filling you with shame and guilt. Know that his mercy is still for you. It may be seemingly insignificant, if you will, not that big a deal. The truth is, it is a very big deal in comparison to our eternal and holy God. You need his mercy, and it is still for you. The Lord responds to his people over and over again with mercy and compassion. Do you lack this morning, every morning, a desire for obedience? Are you this morning in need of God's mercy? The grace of God we see revived Jonah to obey the command that he was given, to obey it faithfully. And we also see that the grace of God revived the people of Nineveh to turn from their sin and to throw themselves upon the mercy of God. That same grace is available and at work today. God continues to delight in reviving sinners to the reality of their sin and their desperate need of his mercy. It is what the Lord has done in the lives of his people throughout history, and it is what he continues to do today in drawing people to himself.
May we respond like the people of Nineveh with repentance when our sin is exposed. May we turn from our sin to the Lord. May we respond like Jonah with obedience as his grace works to renew us day day in and day out. The grace of God awakens sinners like us to his mercy and our need for obedience. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you that it revives us. It has revived us as once dead sinners, now made alive in Christ. And God, it continues to revive us and to renew us each and every day. I pray that we would be renewed, that we would be eager to repent of our sin when your word exposes it. God, that we would be eager to obey you faithfully as you have called us to in your word. Forgive us for where we have been slacking in repentance. Forgive us where we have been eager to disobey instead of obey. By your spirit, may you draw us closer to yourself and to grow us in holiness. We pray all this in Christ's name.